As I mentioned earlier, this is the last sermon in this series on gender. Looking forward to getting back into Mark's gospel. I want to begin by saying that manhood and womanhood always reassert themselves. They just have a way of doing it. It's God's design. But a great way to close off any thoughtful discussion about gender is to use the logical fallacy called the standpoint theory. That simply means end any criticism of you or your position with a simple, you don't have my personal experience and so therefore you can't speak on it. Here's an example. When pressed about abortion by a male reporter from a Catholic publication, the White House press secretary recently said, the president, quote, believes it's up to a woman to make those decisions. I know you've never faced those choices, nor have you ever been pregnant. But for women out there who have faced those choices, this is an incredibly difficult thing. And the discussion was closed off when he simply asked a question about the president's confessed Catholic faith and his position on abortion. Well, by her same standard, the president shouldn't be commenting on abortion either because he's never been pregnant. In order for her to say that to the male reporter, indicate she does believe, though, in gender, doesn't she? It just has a way of coming back up. But when pressed on transgenderism, her logic may not hold up because the, that ideology asserts that men can be pregnant. So which is it? The only real authority for the press secretary and many today is that of personal experience on the matter, and they constantly change by what feels good. It's often much easier for people to believe someone's feeling on a matter as opposed to understanding complex data and variation across a field. You know, the cultural winds, as you can see, are blowing stiff and strong against the church today because we look to our Creator and His Word as our source of authority. God's Word corresponds with reality and unveils deeper truths. And the good news is this, church. We stand not on mere human reason, on mere human tradition, or mere human experience. No, we stand on the truth of God's Word that reveals divine design in every human person. So ultimately, God's created order cannot be re-engineered by fallen humanity and human ingenuity. Manhood and womanhood always reassert themselves. The question is whether it will be healthy or unhealthy. God made us as men and women to act like men and women for the purpose of worshiping Him. You know, the more we see in nature partly and in God's Word mainly what it means to be men and women, the better our lives, marriages, or our children, our churches, and society will be. And today as we round out this series, we'll consider some final thoughts from God's Word. So let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. It won't be the only text I'll be referring to but I will, use, I will springboard from there mostly today in this final topical sermon. It's on page 1052 in the Bible that's provided for you there in the pew. I have preached on chapter 3 uh, more than once just in being a pastor here. You can find 
uh, more strict exposition of that text on the church website. But this letter was written to Pastor Timothy, who was in Ephesus, who had similar struggles that we see today, men and women. And he aims to give Timothy instruction that will promote godly behavior among members of God's household. And one of the primary aims of the book is that the church be in order. And one of those ways is by establishing proper leadership in the church. The New Testament knows two distinct church offices. You heard them in the Confession of Faith this morning. Pastors, elders, overseers, that's, the, that's, that's all the same office, pastor, and then deacon. Elders, pastors, carry out the leading of the church and the ministry of the word, while deacons carry out the ministry of mercy and support, the ministry the, of deed. Those are the two distinguishing marks of those offices. One's the ministry of the word, the other is the ministry of the deed. That doesn't mean that the deacons don't have to tell the truth or that the pastors don't have to do works of ministry. But these officers are, these offices are set up particularly one in leading the church in the ministry of the word and exercising shepherding authority and the other in carrying out the ministry of deed. Let's look at now at the qualifications that Paul gives now in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and then just general exhortation he gives to sum it up. 1 Timothy 3, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a new convert, or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. Deacons, likewise, should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They must also be tested first if they prove blameless, then they can serve as deacons. Wives, likewise, should be worthy of respect, not slanderous, self-controlled, faithful in everything. Deacons are to be husbands of one wife, managing their children and their own households competently. For those who have served well as deacons acquire a good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth, and most certainly the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is God's word. Verse 15 is key. I have written. You will know how, God, how, how people ought to conduct themselves. Paul's instructions, commands, orders in this letter are to Timothy, but they are for everyone. His concern is with how one, that is any person, not just Timothy, should lead God's church and how God's people should live as believers. He calls them the pillar and foundation of the truth, that templing imagery there. A pillar holds something up, and in this case, it's the truth of God, the church 
as the body of Christ presents and upholds the truth. And that means the truth about gender, too. Here's the central point for you. Glorify God in your gender. Glorify God in your gender, both in the assembly and outside of it. Glorify God in your gender, both in the assembly and outside of it. How do we do that? Number one, see to it that Christ-like men shepherd. See to it that Christ-like men shepherd. If you're taking subpoints, here's the first subpoint. Know what an elder is. The words in the New Testament, bishop, overseer, elder, shepherd, pastor, all refer to the same role. 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2, he exhorts the elders to shepherd, that is pastor, and oversee, bishop, willingly, all three terms are used there in 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2. The qualifications for elder, pastor, follow immediately on the heels, don't forget, look back at chapter 2, of Paul's injunctions concerning women in the church, and that's the last sermon I preached in this series. The two unique functions given to elders are teaching and ruling, exercising authority. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And then he goes right into the qualifications of an overseer. 1 Timothy 5.17, you can look there while you're in the book, says the elders who are good leaders. That term leaders means to exercise a position of leadership, rule, or direct. So there is an authority obviously granted to the office of pastors and elders. So 1 Timothy 2.12, the teaching and exercising authority are specifically denied to women in the church because God, in His design, placed this burden on qualified men. And we've seen a whole biblical theology of this in this series. The text essentially, essentially and functionally prohibits women from serving as elders' pastors. Second sub-point, know who an elder should be. Know who an elder should be. Look again at at verses 2 through 7. You can see there, just looking and summarizing here, the elders should be students of the Bible and men of exemplary character. They are to be above reproach and examples of godliness in all aspects of their life. They are known in the church for their order, fidelity, godliness, and sound reputation with outsiders. Single or married, these men are to be marked by godliness, self-control, maturity, and faithfulness. They will be spiritual leaders. Next up point, know what separates an elder. Know what separates an elder. Verse 2, an elder must be able to teach. Something not required of deacons. Teaching means that elders must know their Bibles and theology and be able to discern truth from error and know how to communicate that to others in an edifying way. Titus 1.9 says about an elder, he must be holding to the faithful message as taught so that he'll be able both to encourage with sound teaching and refute those who contradict it. Elders minister the Word. 
We don't believe in there, that there are two classes of elders, that, as my beloved Presbyterian brethren do, in teaching and ruling elders. And elders, elders do both of those things. That's their number one priority, is to teach and lead, feed and lead. But unlike elders, deacons are not charged with shepherding the whole flock, as in Acts 20 or in 1 Peter 5. Deacons are not charged with shepherding. And unlike elders, deacons need not stand ready to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. And unlike elders, deacons will not answer to God for the spiritual welfare of individual souls, as Hebrews 13, 17 says, pastors will. So scripture never says, be subject to the deacons or obey your deacons and submit to them, Hebrews 13 says. It doesn't say that. It says that about pastors and elders. The office of elder, unlike the office of deacon, is one of spiritual authority and therefore naturally opened, naturally uh, opened then to qualified men. Church, doesn't this text help us think carefully about, what, about the kind of men our church is producing? kind of men, when it's all said and done, will show that we produced? It certainly makes me think hard as a pastor. And certainly not by my powers, by the power of the Holy Spirit. But sanctification requires us striving too. It requires spiritual sweat, if you could put it that way. And church, doesn't this text compel us to feel the need to pray for godly qualified men who are faithful in their sexuality, under control, welcoming, skilled at teaching, gentle, not quarrelsome, won't debate everything, but gracious and free from the love of money and this world? Folks, the character we should long to see in each member, let alone each elder, is the character of Christ. Paul just lays out what it means to be a faithful Christian here. It's not super Christians he's talking about. This should be the pattern of every believer. Jesus is the chief shepherd. He was, the only, he was not only above reproach, he was sinless. He never sinned. He was tempted in every way we are, but he never sinned. There's no sin in him. He is our primary example. And he is our righteousness. When our elders and our members are walking in the basic, basic Christianity of 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 7, this is what it means, this is what it looks like in many ways to walk in the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit, to be submitted to the Spirit. So as you read this text, don't dismiss it as, oh, that's for Pastor Garrett or Chris or Mark or Isvan. No, we need to all look at 1 Timothy 3. Church member, are you more critical today of potential or current elders than you are of your own walk? So what if we brought you up for discussion in light of the character qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 in front of the whole church? How would that go? Would you be found out in something? Would you be found... To be a drunkard or loving money or 
in the flesh consistently, being quarrelsome, being ugly, being dishonest in your dealings. Friends, as much as that might cause anxiety for you to stand before the church and be evaluated, there is one who sees everything about us. He knows us inside and out, and we cannot deceive him. He is our Lord and Savior. Friends, it's not just the elders who, by the way, who can be ensnared by the devil. Church, by the grace of the Spirit, let us walk as, as Jesus and pray for the Spirit's aid to produce Christ-like shepherds amongst us and godliness amongst our people. And he has ordained it that men bear this responsibility. That's God's design, not Pastor Garrett's, not tradition. That's consistent through the Bible. That men are to bear this shepherding responsibility. That they are to get out and lead. And shepherds smell like the fold. They get bitten by the fold sometimes. They get resistance from the fold. But they must keep on shepherding like Jesus by the grace of the Spirit. So please pray for them. Pray for me. See to it that Christ-like shepherds, by the grace of the Spirit, are raised up here. Glorify God in your gender, both in the assembly and outside of it. Number two. See to it that Christ-like servants deacon. See to it that Christ-like servants deacon. First up one is remember the servant. The Old Testament tells us about the true and greater servant. He is the suffering servant. He is the one that Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Spirit, that God told him is my servant. And we know who he is. His name is Jesus. You know, in, in anticipation of his final meal with his disciples, Jesus makes arrangements to have the room and, and, and the supper prepared. And the last thing that anyone expects is to watch their great master kneel down, assuming the posture of a, and role of a nobody, a slave, in order to, to wash their filthy feet. He interrupts their pathetic quarrel about who's greater and for who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Deaconing. It's the one, isn't it the one at the table? But I'm among you as the one who serves, Jesus said in Luke 22. Jesus is not only the chief shepherd. He's the chief servant, deacon of the Bible. So we need to have that in mind when we think through a deacon, a servant, Next subpoint: know what the term deacon means. I've spelled it out for you already, but the, the term means servant. Deacons in the Bible, we see them serving food and water. In the New Testament, they distribute charity to and from the congregation. They serve the church body in physical ways. Physical ways, a ministry of deeds. They provide, the elders provide, you could say, spiritual bread in preaching and teaching the word. And the deacons often offer physical bread. Elders give ministry oversight. Deacons provide daily service. It's important that we get those roles and those offices correct in a local church. The ministry and giftedness of the entire church can be summarized as word and deed. So it's no surprise that the officers of the church reflect the basic demarcation. Elders minister in word, deacons in deed. Next sub-point. Know that women 
can serve as deacons. Know that women can serve as deacons. In 1 Timothy 3.11, it's the center of no small amount of controversy. The Greek word gynaikos can mean women or wives depending on the context. And so if you look at your footnotes, you'll notice that many of your translations offer that in the bottom. And you can see, uh, so I want to note up front, there is no there, T-H-E-I-R, present in the Greek at all. And nowhere, and, and excuse me, and by the way, there were no qualifications given for an elder's wife in the previous section. If the word means their wives, then Paul is commanding the deacon's wives to be noble women. And there are some who hold that position. Good brothers and sisters. If, however, the word is better understood as women, then it looks as if Paul is giving the qualifications for women deacons, or at least a subset of the office of deacon that could be filled by women. I'm going to argue that in an elder-led, not deacon-led, an elder-led church, women can serve as deacons, and I stand on the shoulders of Pliny the Younger, Clement of Alexandria, John Chrysostom, Jerome, John Calvin, wait for this, Charles Spurgeon, Louis Louis Burkhoff, James Montgomery Boyce, John MacArthur, Tom Schreiner, Mark Dever, and scores of others in this position. Even Kevin DeYoung, who does not hold my view, stated it is actually a legitimate position in his gracious book. Why would Paul discuss deacons in verses 8 through 10, then jump to women deacons, verse 11, and then go right back to what some perceive clearly male deacons in verse 12. Well, let's zoom out and look at the whole passage. The very map-like, a very map-like view of this text suggests that women in verse 11 are not fundamentally distinguished from the deacons, but from the elders. Paul is treating the women and the deacons together as one office in parallel relation to the elders, the other office. So if you look at the, well, I want to make an argument there are two bookends here in this section. At the beginning of the paragraph, with general statements pertaining to all deacons are verses 8 through 10. In the middle is 11 and 12, and then verse 13 is the other bookend. You follow me? Now notice what is on the inside of which he addresses. With brief specificity, uh, specificity, Female, verse 11, and male deacons in verse 12. In verses 11 and 12, they're sandwiched there to talk about male and female deacons. Another reason to know that Paul is talking, uh, not talking about wives here is that Paul's nine uses of this exact term in 1 Timothy, only, only one bears the exact same structure as 3.11. Look back at chapter 2, verse 9. Likewise, also women. Verse 11 of chapter 3, women likewise. Very exact, similar structure and sentencing there. And so since the first in in chapter 2, verse 9, is clearly referencing women, not wives, I would argue we should default to hearing its later echo here in chapter 3, verse 11, in the same way. So Paul's bare use of the term... Without the pronoun there, it's not in the Greek, means he has women, deacons, in view. 
Again, consider the grammatical structure of the text. Verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified. He gives three qualifications after that. Verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified. Three qualifications. Verse 11, women likewise must be dignified, followed by three qualifications. These verses stand in exact parallel, each featuring the word likewise, followed by dignified, followed by three additional qualifications. So this use of likewise, echoing verse 8, suggests that Paul is still discussing deacons. The women serve just as the men do. And let us not forget Romans 16. Phoebe is called a deacon of a specific church in Romans 16, 1 and 2. Throughout the New Testament, this term is often used in a general sense and rightly translated servant or minister. But since this, the person's labor isn't tied to, a spe, that's when it's not tied to a specific location, much less to a specific church. But Paul tethers Phoebe and her deacon status to a single congregation in Romans 16. The most natural conclusion then is that deacon, she's a deacon of the church. It's not a general description, but an official title. Church, you know I've always had that position. I'm not telling any of you anything new about where I have stood exegetically or historically with many brothers on this issue. But I just want to make it plain that God gives men and women with gifts of service. We could slap a different title on it in this church to make maybe it might make you more comfortable. They're still functioning in a, in a way of service. These people of noble character. Church faithfulness and love of Jesus are tasked by the congregation to keep the ministry of the word free-flowing. The deacons are the shock absorbers of a church. And someone has to organize child care and budget and nursery and maintenance and hospitality. And we could go on and on. There are things, church, you don't want your pastors doing because you want to free them to care for the drama, for the pain, for the standards of public worship and the ministry of the word, not to mention while your elders have gifts, we don't have them all. And so we should pray that God would help us by raising up a delegation of servants who would serve like Jesus, image him in that way, and, and know that they are not exercising any authority in violation of 1 Timothy 2.12. I would be as bold to say this morning we need to update our bylaws and recognize sisters who are who are, who are joyful, shock absorbers of deed ministry here at La Plata Baptist Church. We need to pray for more servants, qualified deacons. You know, church, as we think about this application, are we the kind of church that produces consumers or servants? Let's say, moving away from even the discussion to think about who can serve, just, are we even the church that produces this? And what example are we setting for what each other enjoy? Church, God has given us men and women to serve. He's given us men to shepherd, but He's given us men and women to serve. He calls us all to be servants. And some should be recognized to a duty when that occasion requires it. Glorify God in your gender both in the assembly and outside of it. Number three. Live as God's household. Live as God's household. 
Identifying the church as a pillar and buttress of the truth is a way of saying that God has entrusted to the church the task of promoting and protecting the gospel. Church, when we go over our statements of faith so regularly in the assembly, in the assembly is to remind you of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. It's to remind you of that section that we are to promote and protect the gospel. The imagery of the pillar and foundation presents the church's responsibility of holding up the gospel before a watching world. Not just in what we get up and say in words and heaven help us if we're just going through the motions. It has to be in here. It has to be lived out. In the words of Paul's words to Titus, we're to adorn the gospel. So we don't only confess it, we're to walk in the gospel. And as God's household, we are to do this every day in our gender. Every day in our gender. I want to take a few moments and give some application now on how men and women display the gospel and our Savior in gender roles to tie this all up. You know, men, we've talked about image the self-sacrificing shepherd and women image the yielded incarnate son of 1 Corinthians 11. Men think of Ephesians 5. Ladies think of 1 Corinthians 11. And so specifically, here are the categories I'm going to talk about. Posture, body, appearance, demeanor, and character. Posture, body, appearance, demeanor, and character. And thank you, Kevin DeYoung, for your help on this. And by the way, let's be sure not to take this exhortation time to turn into a place of feeling strong about ourselves, but instead towards humble reflection. I found this section incredibly challenging for my own walk, and I hope you'll find it the same for you today. First subpoint here is posture. This is about our inclination. Our inclination. What is your overall posture? Are you yielding? Do you have an overall yielded position to Christ? Is there any area of your life that you have withholding from Him? Male leading and female helping is what men and women should be intentional to find and eager to accept. And working that out takes wisdom. But the exhortation here from God's Word, is not for women to sit down, but for men to stand up. I want to be really clear on that. A man who leads in love makes it much easier for a woman to humbly help. It would be wrong, sinful even, for a husband to tell his wife, you're the helper, I don't help you. Ladies, if your husband is saying that, please come see the elders. We'll, we'd love to talk with him. The fact that men were created to lead does not mean that that men lead to the exclusion of helping or that women help and are never able to exercise leadership. But given the role of men as the head of the house and the wife, the wife should be willing to be led and the husband eager to take the sacrificial initiative to lead. So this point about posture often has more to do with what men ought to be doing than what women should not be doing. So young men, if I could speak to you in the room... Maybe those antennas will come up. Are you growing at leading 
in good things? Or are you simply being passive? Talking to you too, Connor boys. Holding on to your... Are you being passive? Are you taking the grace to lead? Or are you being passive? Just holding on to your device all the time. Refusing to do for yourself and for others, young men. Anybody can sit around and do nothing and stare at a screen all day. Are you taking initiative to lead Well, you know God might be giving you that opportunity right there to take initiative and lead. To lead in service. To lead in helpfulness. To lead in righteousness. And young women, do you have biblical standards for a potential mate? Or are you going to settle for an adult adolescent? And there's too many of those today. Parents, what conversations are you having with your children because it can't be, you can't be merely saying at home, well, did you hear what the pastor said today? And then never say anything yourself. This is supplement to what you're doing at home. I'm the supplement. You're to be the main meal. Parents, you should be the primary one having this discussion. But are you having that? Are you only leaning on me to bring up the tough subjects? Don't do that. It needs to be reinforced by each of you today. So... Are we setting them up for a posture that's masculine or feminine? Body. Number second subpoint, body. The world claims that orientation is more essential than biological reality. It further claims that gender is a construct imposed on you and you, you and me for control. Our actions, therefore, should they say, correspond to our self-authenticating rather than God-authenticating, self-authenticating desires more than our biological realities. But the Bible tells a different story. Our actions are to correspond to our divinely designed sexual identity. The male body, for example, is not designed to fit together in a one flesh union with another man. That's the truth. Even apart from supernatural revelation, we can see that our bodies were designed to fulfill the creation mandate. Using our private parts for any alternative purpose is unnatural and a rebellion against the order established by our Maker, which we've looked at in previous sermons. And so this is why Paul uses the language of natural relations in Romans 1, 26 and 27. For this reason God delivered them, these rebels, over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men, in the same way also, left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. So God endowed the unique male and female union with the procreative ability, the ability to fulfill the creation mandate, to replenish the earth and to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. The body is not incidental, is what I'm saying, to our purpose as human beings. Our our God created our bodies and called them good. The same God took on human flesh in the incarnation. And God is going to resurrect our bodies, the Bible tells us. Our bodies are telling a story that we're either testifying, testifying in our bodies that we're headed for glory or we're not. 
Our bodies are not incidental. How we use them is not, separate, is not a separate matter from who we are and how God has made us to be. You say, Pastor, I've rebelled against God in my body. I've allowed my body's passions to drive me in my everyday moves. To that I would say, we've all sinned. You're in, a, you're in an assembly that uh, has many people who have sinned immorally, who have people who have sinned sexually. We not put on airs that we're some perfect people, that, that God somehow came to justify the righteous. He didn't come for the righteous. He came for sinners. We've all sinned. None are righteous, and none can be justified before God by their works. We need one to live in our place. We need one who would say, this is my body for you. We need a substitute. We need the Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life of righteousness in our place, was, went to the cross to die as our substitute to bear our sin, our guilt, our shame, and the wrath of God, and to pay the penalty for our sins, and to be raised on the third day in accord with the Scriptures. And He offers salvation to any and all who repent and believe. Are you grieved in your sins? Do you want mercy? Come to Christ. Repent and commit your life to Jesus. Trust in Him alone. You know, it's, it's one thing to profess, that, profess faith. It's another thing to possess it. Have you repented of your sins? I didn't ask you if you prayed a prayer. I didn't ask you if you, if you said some, went through some program. Have you repented of your sins and are you still repenting of your sins and holding to Christ? Giving evidence that you have trusted in Him alone for salvation. That you testify that He would allow you into heaven not on your merits, but on the merits of Jesus alone. You know, this Lord's Supper here is for sinners, it's true, but it's for a subset of sinners. Repentant sinners. It's for repentant sinners. For those who have been baptized, as we saw last week, testifying their faith is in Christ, brought into the accountability and fellowship of the church, walking hand in hand, holding fast to Christ. You know, God created male bodies and female bodies, different bodies that carry moral oughts according to God's good design. And Christian, one of the most counter-cultural verses, I mean, you want, to tell, you want someone to look at you like you're crazy today? Let them know you believe in 1 Corinthians 6. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. My life is not my own. This body is not my own. It belongs to the Lord. Next sub-point, appearance. Appearance. I think we all know that stereotypes can be harmful when they function as unreflective and constraining prejudices. But as you remember from Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 11, it is complicated, but at its core, he asserts that confusing the appearance of our genders is contrary to nature. When Paul says that nature itself teaches that long hair is a disgrace to man, he's not making a universal statement about hair length. I wish I had hair. He is asserting a universal statement that confusion of the sexes is contrary to nature. Today, Paul might have sounded like this. Doesn't nature itself teach you that if a man wears a cocktail dress, it's a disgrace for him? Does not nature itself teach us that if a man puts on lipstick, it's a disgrace for him? Something like that. 
In our cultural context, these actions express femininity, not masculinity. Unless you're in some movie or in some band, I guess, maybe, I don't know. But you, you get the cultural cues from that illustration. If masculinity and femininity are, femininity are going to have conceptual content, we cannot avoid certain cultural cues. And believers, we must be extraordinarily thoughtful on this point. If someone from our church struggles with gender identity issues or gender dysphoria, we need to deal patiently with them and sympathize with, uh, with struggles they're experiencing and caring for them. We must also be careful not to equate biblical manhood and womanhood with one-dimensional cultural stereotypes. You know, like real men drive pickup trucks, which, by the way, are really hard to get right now. Just saying. Um, don't go try to buy one. They're really high. But again, real men drive pickup trucks. Well, that's, that's not what we would glean from God's word. Or that they hunt and fish and watch football and real women bake cookies and sew and share their feelings and watch the Hallmark Channel. That's not helpful at all. But, we, but at the same time, in identifying that obnoxiousness, we don't need to be blind to other observations. I mean, do all girls like playing with dolls? No, but most do from a very young age prior to, any, to intense socialization. Do all boys turn sticks into swords and guns? No, but most do, and more so than girls. There's a reason you don't hear moms telling their boys, be careful in playing with those girls, they're too rough. God made men and women to be different, and that when we confuse those differences, we're confusing what God designed to bring Him glory. The Bible may not give us every detail we want on these topics, but it does at least affirm an essential truth, no longer obvious in our day, that it's disgraceful for a man to, to appear to be a woman and a woman to be, appear to be a man. It's not, for, it's not, uh, it's not uh, the first area where we need wisdom to apply broad principles into specific areas. And so you should pray, read your Bible, follow uh, faithful discipleship, and grow. Next sub-point, demeanor. Demeanor. In Paul's mind, a mom has certain demeanor, and a father has a different type of demeanor. And these demeanors correspond with the natural inclinations of their gender. I tell my boys all the time, thank God for your mama. Thank God for your mama. If it was just me and you, oh my. And God bless those parents who've had to do it just them. But Paul, remember his descriptions in 1 Thessalonians 2? He described his own ministry like that of a nursing mother. Paul did. Gentle, affectionate, sacrificial. And then he describes his ministry as fatherly in 1 Thessalonians 2. Full of exhortation, encouragement, and leadership. He identifies these demeanors as corresponding with one gender more than the other. He's not suggesting that one set of virtues is exclusively feminine or exclusively masculine. But he advocates that certain manners fall naturally along gender lines. When Paul thinks of nurture, affection, and gentleness, he thinks of a mother. And when he thinks of exhortation, discipline, and charge, he thinks of a father. Yes, each man and each woman is unique. No matter our personality types, Fathering is generally marked by an exhortive demeanor 
and mothering, mothering is marked by gentleness, which is saying something uh, given the people that moms work with every day. Again, we need to apply wisdom in these ways. Last of all is character. Last one here, character. Peter in 1 Peter 3, 1-17 commands women to be respectful, pure, gentle. He exhorts men to show honor, be understanding, and exercise caring leadership. These are to be their God-given distinctives. The right type of adornment is what he's hitting at here. And so if you're in 1 Timothy still, you can look back at the instructions to, to women there in 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. Pursue beauty on the inside more than beauty on the outside. Men in the Bible, the New Testament, are to display the right kind of strength toward their wives. Not frightening and domineering. That's bullying behavior. No, but honoring and understanding. Be full of conviction. Men were made to be strong. Usually with bigger muscles and taller stature than women. That's why the Bible associates strength with manliness. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. 1 Corinthians 16. To be sure, this is a command to the whole church. So men and women are called to here in 1 Corinthians to be manly in that way. What we can learn from Scripture's emphasis on female beauty and masculine strength. Well, women are wired for the internal beauty of Christ-likeness. Women are made for this type of beauty. It is their crowning characteristic. And men, being generally, generally, not always, generally physically stronger, more inclined to activities that involve competition and risk. So tender-hearted, self-sacrificing, risk-taking strength is the crowning characteristic of men. Let me bring this to a landing. Manhood and womanhood always reassert themselves. We are made in the image of God for union with Christ. And we're to tell our sons and daughters to walk in biblical masculinity and femininity. We should tell our daughters they should strive to be beautiful in the way God wants them to be beautiful. And our sons to strive to be strong in all the way God wants them to be strong. God made us as men and women to act like men and women. And the more we see in nature, partly, and in God's Word mainly, what it means to be men and women, the better our individual walks, our marriages, our children, our churches, and society will be. Authority and submission, leadership and nurture are meaningful expressions of what it means to be a man and a woman, rooted not just in the names we give to people, but in nature itself. The expression of nature will not look identical in the church and outside the church. Married and single, young, old, but importantly, it should look like something. It should be visible. It should be striving to be in the image and the goodness and grace of Christ. It should stand confident in the truth and conviction and courage of our Lord and Savior. I pray that this series has been helpful to you and helpful to us as a church. Let's pray.
Father, we continue to pray that you'd raise up godly men to lead and exercise and teach it, Lord, with authority in the life of the church. We pray that you'd raise up faithful servants in the ministry of deeds, Lord, in the life of our church. We pray that each and every member would walk in the gift of gender, Lord, single or married, whatever stage of life we're in, that we might not violate your word, but only bring honor to our Lord and Savior. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.